You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. How are you guys doing that? Hey, it was, it was pretty loud in my uh, earphones. There's some, uh, there's some dissent here about whether the audio is coming through both ears or not. Evan is very easily tricked <laughs> if you're involving him in any other scheme. I think <laughs> most of our listeners will confirm that it's coming through both of their headphones right now. <laughs> we do have a third uh, We have a third full-quality mic in the mix, which is yeah. first over here. Welcome to the Longform Podcast, where every week we tell you about our studio. <laughs> <laughs> Max, who did you talk to this week? Uh, I talked to Arielle Levy. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker. Uh, we've been trying to have her on for a long time, and it fell through a couple times. Uh, but she arrived. It happened. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Been anticipating this one for a while. If you're anticipating Valentine's Day, get out ahead by calling Pro Flowers. That's at proflowers.com. You can get a dozen assorted roses with a free glass vase for $19.99 or double the roses. That's two dozen roses and a premium vase for just $9.99 more. Uh, you're going to want to use promo code LONGFORM, which supports the show. Oh, man. It's a tough act to follow. <laughs> but the good people at Tiny Letter. Well, they, they don't, they, they're, never, they're always on, on tap. They are always <laughs> on tap. They follow no one. Uh, they will help you reach your followers via an email newsletter. It's done by the good people at MailChimp. Uh, we thank them, as always, for their sponsorship. I've, got, I've gotten hooked on a couple of these tiny letter uh, newsletters. I'm getting a couple in my inbox now. I'm getting the uh, Alexis Madrigal has a really excellent one, and uh, Robin Sloan has one, which very rarely sends out. But uh, And Friedman. And she, Friedman's yeah. excellent. So um, tiny letter, it's like a, it's like a new become a new uh, new part of my day. All right. Here's Max with Ariel Levy. Well, hi, Ariel Levy. Hi, Max. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. Usually there's like a long ramp up and we can get to know each other and like uh, no, uh, let's shoot the shit for a while. For it. But let's you have to be somewhere in there. like now. Let's get in there. So we're going to get right in yeah, there. Let's get in. And I'm just going to, we're just going to start. Yeah. Okay. Here's a, I have a lot of things to talk about. I don't actually know how we're going to do this in the, a lot of time. I guess we'll we find have, out. Because you have written a lot of things. Yeah. Like, like many things I'd like to talk to you about. But, but, uh, pick one. Okay. Well, I'm not going to pick one. Okay. We'll pick one to start with, I mean. Well, I have a question to start with. All right. So I've been reading all this stuff, all these many, many things you've written, mm. and a thing that is in them that mm. is not often in magazine writing, you write about 
your childhood, like a lot. Really? Yeah. Do I? Yeah. And I didn't know that, Max. Uh, yeah, uh, in a bunch of them. In a, really? Quite a bit, in fact. Do you actually not know that? Or, or are yeah, you I actually me don't know that. Are you mocking me for the headphones? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not mocking you in any way <laughs> at all. When I mock you, you'll know it. Okay. No, I'm not going to mock you. Yeah, you write about being a kid a bunch. And, really? And with this, like, um, uh, with this, like, kind of like, uh, vivid confidence that's really kind of amazing to me because I like, I don't remember shit from <laughs> being a kid. I kind of remember. I can't. I can't really tell you anything. And it seems like you really remember stuff like really clearly. And you're like, this is how it was when I was five. This is what my birthday party was like when I was 10. Uh huh. This is what it was like to like have sex when I was 15. You seem to like, uh, really remember that stuff. Well, I, I remember, I mean, I actually, if, if somebody said, Oh, do you remember a lot about your childhood? I would say, by the way, um, mom, if you're listening, I did not have sex when I was 15. Um, I didn't max. Okay. I, I, I didn't. I absolutely did not. Well, you kind of did. I tried to, <laughs> but I failed to. Okay. All right. It's one of many attempts at, you know, precocity that failed me. But um, <laughs> Max, I don't remember much, but I remember some things vividly. And I think that even though I'm not lying to you, and I'm certainly not mocking you, when I say that I did not know I did that, I really did not know I did that. And if someone just asked me, do you know? Do you remember a lot about childhood? I would have said, no, not really, no. But some things vividly. But the reason I'm not shocked to hear you say that is that um, writing and wanting to be a writer desperately were huge aspects of my childhood. Yeah. So I guess I'm not shocked to hear it gets in there because whatever... Um, identity I have as a writer, like whatever, like sense of myself as a writer person. You know what I mean? Like your your authorial voice or whatever that is. Yeah, I have been working on that project since <laughs> I was, you know, I don't know, seven, six. I mean, yeah. little, little, really little. I, I mean, I guess a bunch of the times where it comes up, you're sort of talking about yourself as a writer and knowing it early. Yes, I was very, I was very passionate about <laughs> it. I'm not kidding you. I was mortifyingly passionate about it as. A child. Did you know what kind of writer you wanted to be? Yes, I wanted to be a good one. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I didn't know what kind of writer I wanted to be, but I wanted to be a writer badly. Were you like a uh, uh, you know journaling a lot? Were you? A... I was. I was journaling a lot. <laughs> I was indeed. Well, I mean, I can't help but wonder if this isn't a common experience for writers and just for like you know neurotic girl children. I mean. Once I read, you know, The Diary of Anne Frank, I was like, oh, I'm fully doing this. I'm fully going to have a confidant and her name is going to be what I don't know what the name was. I don't know if I went that far, but I mean, I actually know I did go that far, but I actually can't remember the name. See, I don't remember that much about my childhood either, but <laughs> I all, definitely it's was all foggy for me. journaling my, my little guts out. <laughs> I definitely was. Uh, and and imitating other people's styles. I'm not kidding. Well, I mean, that, like, that's a thing that continues, right? What imitating other people's yeah. styles? That's not like uh, just the hallmark of uh, like ten-year-old journaling. It's been a while. I mean, when I was younger and I wrote for lots of different magazines, yeah, like sometimes you know you'd do something for this magazine or that magazine, and kind of part of the fun of it was being like, now I'm going to see if I can sound like Vogue, you <laughs> right. know. But that it's been a long time. I've been in a monogamous relationship with the New Yorker for almost five years. Before that, I was with New York Magazine for twelve right. years. 
And I thought you were going to say I'm, I've been in like a monogamous relationship with my own voice for a long time. <laughs> with my own ego? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> um, well, that's, I mean, another thing that was interesting is sort of how your style evolves. Like you've been writing for magazines since you were pretty young. Mm. This precociousness continued. And the early stuff is a lot different than the stuff you're writing now. Yeah. Well, you know, you. I mean... As our mutual friend Malcolm Gladwell says, you know, ten thousand hours, and it's it's true. I mean, you know, you get if you you get better. And one of the things I wrote a book ten years ago called "Female Chauvinist Pigs" that I kind of despise. I mean, I don't really. Yeah, I do. I don't disagree with anything I wrote, but I just something about it makes my skin crawl. And I is that when you're thinking about it, or do you like actually go back and look at it? Oh, I don't go back and look at it for f- crying out loud, Mac. <laughs> Are you mocking me? No, I just, but people ask me questions sometimes or like, you know, it comes up on occasion and I, and I feel like, ugh. and I think it's, you know, it's 10 years ago. I mean, your style evolves and your taste changes. What is it that, what is it that, you know, gives you a bad taste in your mouth? It offends my sensibilities. It offends my delicate sensibility. No, it does. I mean, like, I think it's, um. It's too flagrant. The language is too. It's not understated. I don't know. I don't. I, there's things about it I don't think are classy. But that... <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. But what I was going to say is, I'll never regret that I wrote that book because there's something about writing a book that's very good for your writing, like as opposed to magazine writing. There's something about that kind of commitment and engagement with one thing that helps you with your writing. I I, I found. I how, found. How did it help your writing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I have nothing further to say on that topic. No, I just think that the commitment and the like powering through the hard spots the way you have to with a book. Right, which, which is different than an, uh, than an article. Even the longest article, it ends. It's you know out, it's going to end. It's going to get out of your face. Do you not have the like crazy uh, like uh, terror when you start a new article now? That's like a thing that keeps coming up again is even these incredibly accomplished journalists are like, every time I finish one, I'm panicked. I'll never find another good story. And I- yeah. I mean, I definitely have panicked that I'll never find another good story. I'm actually, I had a piece come out yesterday. I'm trying to find another story now. And it's always like, you know, until you find one, you're like, is that the last story I'm ever going to find? <laughs> but it's different than like writer's block. It's not that I have a terror about like, oh, I couldn't write it. But finding stories is a pain in the butt. Do you not have like a like a like a folder of stuff in the hopper? Do you have not? not have I some, do like, not fo- have a folder. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I have a couple. Yeah, ahead. Like lined up, but you don't have like the like uh, like B material that you keep in your back pocket for when you don't find a story. No, because. You know, it's a weekly magazine, so things need to be timely. So very rarely is there something that would just work whenever. Things need to have a peg and they need to be, you know, vaguely. You're Now you're mocking me. You're sitting there with headphones on mocking me. Why you, is that, Max? Uh, you should put your headphones on. It's I really, it's really ab- unprofessional to not be wearing headphones. Absolutely not. <laughs> There's absolutely no way. I was just, I was, uh, I was just struck by you saying that the New Yorker needs to be timely. Okay. I'll thank you to take your smug Dumbo water from a metal bottle drinking attitude and knock that off right now. The New Yorker is has a looser relationship with timeliness than some publications, but it's still, you know, we try to keep it. I mean, we try to be reasonable. Let, let's let's do this. Some people can do that. Right. That's not my job. That's not your there. thing. Other than the first person essay, you know, it's 
they need my my things need to that's sort of part of my job is to do things that are relatively timely that's what is what is your like what is your beat i don't have one you just have to do timely things well no it's hard to explain it's kind of like you know the the nixon panels like definition of pornography like i know when i see it you know i mean it's like you know i obviously there's not obviously that's a pompous I happen to have some themes that interest me. It is obvious. Every writer has themes, you know, that are their jam. Right. But I don't have a beat. I mean, I think certain kinds of stories about gender, certain kinds of stories about sexuality. Older, awesome ladies. Lately, I'm on an older, awesome... awesome, pretty into older, awesome ladies. Which is Edie and Diana. Yeah, there was another one I was thinking of. Nuh-uh. I mean, who cares? Whatever. I love older, awesome ladies. There's no question. I love them. We're really hopping around here, but that's another thing I wanted to ask you about. These, like, uh, when you are writing about people who are awesome, who you like clearly admire, yeah. How do you do? You do you feel like you need to keep like a distance there? I need to remember that my first loyalty is to my reader, and I and I do remember that. Like right. when push comes to shove, I love Edie. I mean, I love Edie Windsor, and Which, I would like clearly comes through in the story. No, Edie's my friend, but was I did... she your, was she your friend before you? Started no, no, no. Her? I met her to do that story. I maybe just for anyone who's listening who doesn't know. Oh, I'm sorry. We're talking about Edith Windsor, who is the plaintiff in uh, Windsor versus the United States, and it was the case that brought down the Defense of Marriage Act this past spring. And Edie's 84, and she's a fabulous girl, and I love her. But I did think she didn't want me to do. I mean, she got mad at me about things after the story came out. No, I mean, throughout the process, I didn't just do whatever she wanted because I my loyalty has to be greater to my reader than to my subject. But I'm not going to lie to you. I love Edie. <laughs> right. I love Diana Nyad. I think she's fabulous. Yeah. But I but I haven't heard from her then, since that story came out. She may hate it. I don't Nyad. know. Nyad. Yeah. I mean, it's only been like 48 hours. Do you usually hear from people really quickly? No. It depends. You never know yeah. what someone's going to think. I mean- I never heard from Nora Ephron after I profiled her. I have no idea, you know, and I'll never know, obviously, right. if she liked it or she hated it. I don't know. Were you, like, waiting for that call? I was, I, I'm not going to lie. I was curious Yeah. what she felt about it. But um, I think, you know, Nora was such a classy kind of dame and so, you know, hilariously imperious. She wasn't going to indulge a journalist in that. I'm sure <laughs> right. Nora comes from She this- wasn't going to give you the satisfaction of letting you know what she thought. She well, she certainly didn't give me the satisfaction. It's certainly possible she had other things she on her mind, and she just you know didn't occur to her. But it's also possible that she's from the school of thought that a journalist shouldn't be sitting around waiting to hear from her subject. Right. Another yeah. another older awesome lady for the record. Yeah, I listen. I like an older awesome lady, and I don't think enough is written about older awesome ladies, and I don't think there are enough role models for younger awesome ladies. So. And it's not like just I'm making it sound like a public service project, and it's not. The fact of the matter is, as people become older, they experience more, and they tend to become more interesting. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that women sort of tend to fizzle out of the spotlight as they age doesn't mean that I – I mean, that's, a, that's a, you know, from a – I mean, it's a horrible thing as a woman and a human. But as a writer, it's this sort of rich patch of territory that, you know, oh, it's an old – you know, some old lady. You know, maybe people aren't hovering around it the same way they are about a young lady. Yeah. There's something, there's something inspiring about those stories. I assume there's something also sort of like personally inspiring about those stories. It's fun to hang out with awesome old ladies. Yeah. It's fun, it's fun to hang out with anybody awesome. 
Yeah, I guess that's true. You know? But yeah, it's great fun hanging out with an old awesome lady. It's inspiring. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it does make you think, oh, Jesus. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I like I read that rocking story and, it when I'm 80. Yeah, I read that story and just wanted to hang out with Edie Windsor. Edie's a blast. And Edie is rocking it. I mean, Edie <laughs> is having more sex than most people I know who are 37. I mean, she really is rocking it. That's another thing that came through in that story and a couple of these other ones, including the Nyad one, I guess, a little bit, is it seems like um, uh, it kind of comes through that you're having a really good time hanging out with them. I did. I mean, I had a blast with Edie. I mean, I had a true blast. And yeah. It was summer and we were in Provincetown and, you know, and it was this wonderful moment when she had just had an enormous catalytic role in making marriage equality reality and it was just thrilling to be around it was a really exciting thing to be around and it had real world ramifications for lots of people and it was you know I mean you're driving around with her I mean the day the Doma decision went down we were in this car and everywhere that we stopped even if it was just like to pee you know the window comes down people see Edie and people just swarmed up and started crying it was like being in the Pope mobile I mean it was really awesome yeah you're like uh you're like Riding shotgun in history, sort of. That was fucking cool. Yeah. I'm not going to lie to you. That was really exciting. But it, it comes through in the story. Like, uh, they, between the lines, it's like, this is pretty fun cool. Well, listen, I mean, I think it's really fun to be alive. I do. I think it's a lot of fun. And I think I have the best job in the world. I love meeting people and asking them questions. And as I said, you know, I've wanted to be a writer since I was a little girl. Yeah. And the fact that I get to do that for a living, I'm not, I never forget how awesome that is. I mean, I'm psyched about that. Max here. I'm going to pause things for just a second and uh, tell you about our sponsor this week. It's proflowers.com. I feel like if I'm going to talk about this, I should at least admit that I'm totally terrible at this kind of thing. I forget birthdays and anniversaries and Valentine's Day. Basically, if it is a thing that I should put on a calendar, I probably forgot it. If you are disorganized like me, Perhaps Pro Flowers is the way to make sure that you don't screw up Valentine's Day. Uh, they've got a great deal for long-form listeners. It's a dozen assorted roses and a free glass vase for just $19.99. Uh, if you pay $9.99 more, you'll get a second dozen roses. That's two dozen roses and a premium vase, way better vase. Might as well just do that deal. Um, here's the way to do it. Go to proflowers.com. There's a little blue microphone on the top right-hand corner. Click that thing. Use the code LONGFORM to get the deal. That's LONGFORM. Uh, and then they'll, they'll be there. They're guaranteed delivery by Valentine's Day. If they don't last seven days, ProFlowers will give you your money back. So go try it. ProFlowers.com. Click on the little blue microphone. Use the code LONGFORM. That's a way of supporting the show. And, uh, and you get some roses. Maybe even two dozen roses. Thanks very much to ProFlowers for sponsoring the show. And now back to Ariel. All right, well, let's go back in time a little bit. Tell me, tell me about uh, the sort of early New York Magazine days. I'm interested how, in, in how you well, I was made, listening made to that your dream a reality. Interview with my friend Vanessa Gregoriadis, and I mean, <laughs> she was saying to you that you know, there's people screaming, and you know, and they were. I mean, New York Magazine when I got there in 1996, and I don't mean to make it sound like it was 1968 and it was like this magic period, but it was fun. <laughs> we were little. I mean, Vanessa and I were, you know, I was she's one year older than I am, so I would have been. 21 she would have been 22 how'd you get that job vanessa got me that job i right out of college we went to the same college vanessa and i went to wesleyan we both graduated i went to wesleyan too oh right no wonder this is so fun so anyway so i mean i don't even know why i'm saying that i don't even like wesleyan that much but i like you so anyway so we 
I right out of Wesleyan, she started working at New York Magazine. I started working at CBS. I was in the page program. I was one of those kids who ushered for Letterman. Nice. Yeah, it was. It was. You fine. must have been good at that job. I don't know about all that. I, I mean, whatever. It was fine. It quickly became evident to me that it was a production track, not a writing track. And I mm-hmm. wanted to be on a writing track. I wanted to write for TV then. And I realized I wasn't on a writing track. And then one day I called Vanessa, who I didn't know that well in college, and said, how do you like being an assistant at New York Magazine? She said, oh, there's this internship for the Gossip Column. So I worked for the Gossip Column as an intern. And it was so ugly. I mean, <laughs> I, I remember having to call Martha Stewart's daughter, Alexis, who is so funny on that show, and saying, you know, how do you feel about your father having this baby? Because he had just had a baby with somebody else. And it was just like stuff like that, just horrible, like the most invasive <laughs> so things with no literary merit. I mean, but I tell you what, it was good training. Yeah, hardened and you up. It Well, it didn't because I still don't like to ask people questions they don't want to answer. But now I have the luxury of asking them questions that they don't want to answer in service to a big, long thing where they I've hopefully... That's not good English, where I hope I've established that I'm going to work those things into a larger portrait that's going to be full and, and, you know, fully actualized. Right. Instead of of just kind of like uh, ripping out their guts and turning them over quick. That's the one. Instead of being like 22, scared as hell, grabbing someone's, asking them the worst question, grabbing their guts out and like throwing them across the room (laughs) for some gossip columnist to like splatter on the page. However- Does that become like sport at some point? No, no, no. I never liked that. I used to cry in the bathroom like every day. Oh my God, I felt horrible. But we had a blast. John Homans, who is my mentor and taught me how to write. I mean, was my editor at New York Magazine for a dozen years and is still a very good friend. And was Vanessa's, and still is Vanessa's editor at New York Magazine. You know, I mean, everybody smoked still. I mean, Marishon and John Homans would smoke in the office. <laughs> and and it was, you know, and it was when magazines still had some kind of role in the culture, right? So it still seemed kind of cool. I mean, it's still like, oh my God, New York Magazine. <laughs> and we would go to parties and there'd be, I don't know, Candace Bushnell was like a thing then and she was friends with me. I mean, it was, we felt like we were in something culturally, you know, with a lot of frizz on and, and that was really happening. Yeah. It was hard to imagine now, but. Do you not feel that way now? Oh, come on. <laughs> Please. <laughs> but, I mean, I love what I do, I you know, but. Do I feel like I'm at the epicenter of the white hot media? You know, no, I don't. <laughs> those days are those days are done. Do you think there's an equivalent of that now? Like, do you think there's a uh, white hot media center that you're just not hanging out at? I don't know. Is it, maybe it's the World Wide Web. You'd know better than I would. Uh, I'm I'm definitely not there. If, it, if, it, <laughs> if, there, if like that party's happening somewhere, I'm not invited. I don't know what's happening. I don't think I don't think it exists really. I don't know. You know, listen. I mean, then. People in movies probably felt that. People in TV probably felt that. I think that there was not really much of an internet. I mean, you have to realize my job at New York Magazine after I got promoted from the gossip column, I was an amanuensis. It was my job to type in the writer's copy because there was no internet. I mean, there was, but only like eight, you know, science nerds in San Francisco knew what it was. It was, you know, John Leonard or um, whoever you know, would fax the copy in and I would type it in. Yeah. And I would drag the puzzle squares one by one by one into place from this template. Glory days. <laughs> it was fun. I mean, and it was scary. And I don't What know. was scary about it? We Well, I don't know if Vanessa would say the same thing. I was intimidated by everybody. I mean, I was just terrified all the time. I was, a, you know, it's like a kid. I was just scared and I was just like. Did you, uh, 
Did you show it? Or would, yes. Really? Yes. Were you, you were like, uh, oh, I was an anxious wreck. <laughs> and I was really ambitious, which I'm not in the same way now. That's I, a pretty like, uh, that's, a, that's a wild cocktail. Super anxious and wildly ambitious. Oh, I think it's pretty common. Yeah, probably. So what were you ambitious to do? What kind of work did you want to, to be write. doing? I wanted to write for a living. I didn't want to keep dragging puzzles, squares <laughs> around, and I didn't want to type in other people's copy. I Were you hustling to get stories in the magazine? Yes, and I did after a very short time. I mean, I, I was an intern for a few months, and then I was an assistant for a few months. And then I went out with my friend Maida Mendez, who was a photographer, who had done a photo essay on obese women's nightclubs, and I wrote an article about it. And then I went to Mayor Rashawn and said, look, this article, he was the editor of the gossip column at the time. And I said, look, this article exists. Do you want to publish it? Because I knew if I went and pitched it, they'd be like, you're a, you're a charwoman. You're an assistant. No. <laughs> you do the puzzles. Yeah, you do the puzzles. But if you go and say, I've written this article. Yeah, it's done And my already. friend is taking the photographs. Well, that's the thing. It's like, uh, then you go from uh, being a problem to solving someone's problem. That's it right there. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the advice that I always give to young people is that do not go to an interview and tell them what you need. Right. Tell them what you can deliver. Nobody, for them. Solve somebody for them, else's problem. For them. Yeah. And so that's how I did it. So I wrote that story and they published it. That was my first story. And Marishan gave it the title Women's Lib, LB period, <laughs> like pound. Oh, yeah. my God. It's the best headline I've ever been a part of. <laughs> it's all been downhill headline-wise. No, Nick Troutwine, my editor at The New Yorker, titled this piece about the Shinnecock Indians who were deciding whether or not to have a casino on their land in Southampton. He titled that piece Reservations, which I loved. <laughs> and I I loved the title Thanksgiving in Mongolia, which is what I called the, uh, the not the last piece I did, but the piece before that for The New Yorker. I was very committed to that title. We're going to talk about that in a second. I'm not ready to talk to you about it yet. <laughs> okay. Well, if you need some more time I to deal with your time. feelings, yeah. then we will take it. Yeah, that's right. That's All right, right. then. Um, You've been through so much. I know. I know. It's been so hard for me. I know. Um, so what's, you know, once you got out of puzzles and got out of having to write stories on spec, what what were the kind of stories then that you know, Any got stories you? they'd let me do. Yeah. I mean. You would just do anything they threw at you. I was dying to be a writer. I mean, I was dying to be a writer. So if they said do a cover story about Macaulay Culkin. I did it. If they said, do a cover story about Jude Law, I did. I didn't give a shit. I was like, if you will and were you like, let I'm, me write and publish me, I will do it. And was it like, I'm going to make this the best fucking Macaulay Culkin profile that's ever been written? Or were you just like- Well, oh, yeah. But I mean, I think everybody who has any integrity about their writing approaches every story that way. I mean, yeah. it's like you always want it to be the best that you can well, possibly sometimes, but, make it. But sometimes, and people on the show have said- that you know, there's a there's like a one for me, one for them kind of thing. You know, I from time to time am horrified to find that I've signed on to a story that's going to be horrible, but I don't know it going in, yeah. and neither do the people who assign it to me. And then I just do the best I can, and I'm sad the whole time, and I know it's going to suck, but I still do the best I can. Yeah, and if there's any possibility that it can be awesome. Then I'm going to be obsessed and I'm going to do everything I can think of to make it awesome. And I'm going to be so upset anytime I think of something I could have done that I didn't do after. Is there a story during that time when you're when you're doing the Coke and stuff and as you're starting to get sort of like get some chops at New York Magazine? Was there is there a story that you think of as like, maybe I can do this. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to be pretty good at this. Not till later. I mean, 
I was very proud of myself. I was very excited that I got that first women's lib story in. I felt like that was a major hurdle yeah. to say, I am going to assert myself as a writer, even though I'm a slave, even though my job is as an assistant. I'm I'm I I'm going to write. Yeah, that's how I'm gonna think of myself. That's how other people are gonna think of me. Well, not so much, <laughs> but I'm I'm going to get something published. Yeah. I was really proud of that. I don't think I started really being happy with the work I was doing for a long time. Like the stories I really liked in New York magazine were about George Tro, Andrea Dworkin, Dash Snow. I'm trying to remember what else we did that I liked. I liked those three very much. I still like those three. I mean, I'm still proud of those three. Not everyone uh, listening might know who George Tro is. George Tro was this incredible writer for The New Yorker, actually, who wrote a book that when I went to college anyway was sort of famous and it was called Within the Context of No Context. And it was sort of a scream, like Monk's The Scream, you know, about the culture being corrupted. And it was fascinating because on the one hand, he was right. And he talked about television as the great equalizer, like the referee where, you know, there's no difference between the war on fat and the war in Iraq or whatever. I mean, just... And I think that that's real. I think that has happened. And I think the internet is the next step. And there is... Everything he says in that book happened. On the other hand... This is a guy who went to Harvard. He's a white guy who went to Harvard. And, you know, it's somebody saying you've lost everything when you could argue he's lost nothing. So it's a fascinating confluence of snobbery, insanity, and brilliance. There's a lot in that story also about the culture of the New Yorker. Yeah. Well, that's that's that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that's like, you know, New York Magazine, when I was there, wasn't Tom Wolfe and Gloria Steinem and Clay Felker either. Right. I mean, you know, these things have histories and things change. How uh, how involved in the like current culture of the New Yorker are you? I go into the office yeah, and I've made a office? lot of friends. No, 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 but I go in. I mean, I have friends there. I mean, they're people I like to see. I like to go see the other humans, so I'm not just in my house all the time, you know. And I, I know I like people there. I like my boss. I like my editor. I like his assistant. You know, I like uh, – there's people I like to see, so it's fun to go in. I wouldn't want to go every day, <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun to go sometimes. When you when you got that job at the New Yorker, how did you feel like your work needed to change going from New York Magazine to the New Yorker, or did you feel like it had to? When I got that job, it was like magic. I mean, I've had a few times in my life things have been like that where something that just seems impossible starts to happen, and you feel it happening, and you think, "Oh my God, this is going to happen," you know. So, I met David Remnick, the editor in chief of the New Yorker. And something sort of happened. And then we had lunch and that happened. And I just thought, I think I might get this job. <laughs> and then it was so lovely. It was one of the loveliest, most magical moments of my career. When I got that job, I was in Los Angeles staying at my friend DJ's house. And David sent me flowers. And the card said, welcome to the secret treehouse, which was what it felt like. I mean, it just felt like magic. And I was so excited and I was so scared. Yeah. Oh, sure. You Not did. then I wasn't scared. Then I was, yeah. you know, euphoric. <laughs> but once I actually started going to work, I was scared. Yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me about like the working on that first story for The New Yorker. I just felt like I was, you know, the ditziest person there. I mean, I think the first ideas meeting I went to, this, this you know, like 
it it just felt I just felt like it was take your daughter to work day. I felt like everybody there was like a grown up in a three piece suit who was like quoting Der Spiegel, and I just felt like a cupcake. I mean, I just thought I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this. I was terrified to work without John Homans, who had been my mentor and my editor, who I relied on a lot, and I just thought I'm not gonna be able to do it without him. And I was scared. I was really scared. What was the first story you did for the New Yorker? First story I did was Mark Jacobs. With the profile of Mark Jacobs. That was easy. But then I'd do a story about Cindy McCain, and that was hard. Why? Because I had never been on a presidential campaign before. Yeah, you hadn't done any politics stuff in New York? Something, but not that. Not yeah. a real thing. Not the real thing. Not a not John McCain's presidential campaign. And I wasn't getting access. I mean, they just didn't care that I was from the New Yorker. They yeah. just were I mean, you know, they just didn't care. It was a write around, which I don't often do. But, you know, I was new. I was going to do whatever they told me. And it was fascinating. I, mean, I actually ended up being happy with that story because she, to the best of my knowledge, from what I could tell doing a write-around, she was an intense and complicated and uh, a woman with ghosts. And that was fascinating to me. Yeah. So as you sort of evolved at The New Yorker, like when do you start doing your own stuff? How often are you doing assigned stuff? Like... You mean now? Yeah. You know, it depends. Diana and I, the last story I did was my idea. Thanksgiving Mongolia obviously was my idea. Edie Windsor was my idea. But Steubenville was assigned to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm I'm very happy it was assigned to me. It was, it was a f- totally fascinating story to work on. What about uh, the South African runner? Oh, that was my idea. I yeah. was obsessed with that. That was the first story I did for The New Yorker that I was really proud of. I was really happy about that story. Castor Semenya was this runner who won the world championships in Berlin. She was, I think, 18 at the time. Yeah. She's from Limpopo, which is like a little village, literally of mud huts. I've been there. And she won these this the world championships in Berlin. And the next thing you know, all these athletes were saying, you know, who are been our competitors, we shouldn't have had to run against her. It's not fair. She's not a woman. And, and Castor Semenya is unbelievably masculine looking. And it turned out to be the most interesting thing in the world. I mean, it was, first of all, the science of gender, which I had never understood. I mean, even going to Wesleyan. I don't think most people understand it. I don't think most Wesleyan students understand. I don't think most people know that when they say, oh, gender is biologically determined. I mean, uh, what what am I saying? Gender is not biological. What do people say who go to Wesleyan? What do people say? Gender is a construct. That. I don't think when most people say that. They know what they're saying. They're certainly not thinking about biology. And when they say it, I've often sort of, on the one hand, it's exactly what I write about, is gender being construct. On the other hand, when I hear, oh, gender's a construct, it's sort of the kind of thing I would roll my eyes at, like, give me a fucking break. (laughs) But what I learned doing that story is that it was true, that nobody knows what the line is between male and female. I had no idea that was true. When you started reporting? No, I didn't know that. And I don't think most people who say that kind of nonsense know that that's actually literally true, that they there are many cases, as many cases as there are cases of Down syndrome, where a person is born intersex, and there is no one measure that can tell you if they're male or female. You can't just do it by somebody's genitals, because internally, they can be not what their genitals look like. If you did it by their internal organs, you'd be forgetting what they look like on the outside. Right. And if you did it on their chromosomes, those could not match those things. I had no idea 
that any of that was true until I started this story. I had no idea what South Africa was like. I'd never been to South Africa before. I just Amazing place, right? got on a plane. Yeah, I spent a certain amount of time there now. And it was just amazing. That well, story was amazing. W- walk me through that process a little bit because I, I, you know, I'm interested in how you start reporting on something that's that um, intricate and sort of uh, delicate if you don't know about it beforehand. The same way you do any other story. You learn it. And if you want to badly enough, you will. You know, I didn't know the science. I didn't know South Africa. I had no context. I got on that plane because it was like a rush of inspiration. I saw her in the newspaper and I thought, I have to do this story. And I somehow conveyed that urgency to my boss. And I love this, that he didn't say, well, this doesn't make any sense. You're not going to be able to do this. You don't know anybody there. You don't know anything about Africa. He could tell I was like a dog with a bone and there was I was just going to do it. And I just went. And it wasn't until I was flying over you know, the ocean that I thought, oh, my God, I am so dead. <laughs> I don't know anybody there. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And then you want it badly enough, you just do it like anything else. And So what happens when you land? Like, what, what do you do when you land? Okay, well, I know she goes to the University of Pretoria, so I fly to Pretoria. Then I get there, and I start calling people at the University of Pretoria. And you move in concentric circles. I mean, first, you talk to anybody who will talk to you. So head of the student body or, you know, president of the athletics department, whatever. Yeah. And each time you work in a little, a little, a little till you're standing there with her. You know, and you're driving up to her parents. I was there two weeks until you're driving up to her parents' mud hut. I'm not saying that any way other than literally with her lawyer. I mean, it just, you just keep going. And if you want to badly enough, I mean, Gay Talese told me this, you know, that like, if you want to badly enough, you can get to anybody. You can get to anybody. And I think it's true. And when that story came out, what, what, Oh, I guess another question is sort of like when you're in South Africa and you're reporting on that, and part of what's interesting about that one is that it kind of blew up while you were reporting it. It became a much bigger story. It was a pretty big deal when I got on the plane to go there. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the only people covering it were kind of British tabloids in like the most like, you know, British tabloidy way. Right. I do think that the way the the tabloids reacted to the story was... This is, you know, a curiosity from the Cabinet of Curiosities, and this is a sideshow. And the big thing with that story that was so interesting, which I couldn't have really understood until I started getting into it, was, I mean, I suppose, on the one hand, it's obvious. On the other hand, it wasn't obvious to me until I started really working on it. South Africa has a freighted history of people being categorized and recategorized by whim. One minute you're black and then a census taker gives you a look up and down and says, oh, no, I've decided you're colored and your whole life changes and you can go to different places and you can date different people and you go to different schools and you can literally physically walk to different parts of the city. You know, that is the history of South Africa. The recent history of South Africa is white people telling people of color, I am going at a whim to categorize you and recategorize you. So that was what was happening was that somebody was grew up her whole life thinking, I'm a woman. You know, I have the genitals of, of a woman. I pee sitting down. Yeah. That's what her family told me. That's how you know who somebody is. is whether, do they pee standing up or sitting down? She peed sitting down. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of white people say, no, you're not what you think. You're not really a woman. You're something else. That sort of context is is in that story. And, and you sort of put it forward as kind of a theory of why South Africa really rallied around her in, oh, in, yeah. a, in an incredibly emotional way. And you're, you're sort of put it forward that that 
that history is a big part of why that happened. Well, another big part of why is politics. I mean, one of her big, you know, one of the people who managed to get himself in there loudly, quickly, was Julius Malema, who has since been ejected from the ANC for talking smack about President Zuma and who has, like, you know, populist aspirations of, you know, oh, well, we should burn down the Boer farms, you know, like Zimbabwe. I mean... Here's here's what I wanted to ask. I feel I feel like if uh, um, trying to put myself in that situation, I actually was in that situation. Like I went I went and lived in South Africa for a while. Did you? Yeah, and it took me. I don't even know now that I feel like I understand the place. Very, it was one of the most complicated places I've ever been in my entire life politically. I mean, then sociologically, it's a completely complex place. And I'm interested in in how you get the confidence quickly to sort of understand a place like that. Like as a reporter, how do you, how do you attack that problem? You show up somewhere, you land in Pretoria, you got this like incredibly, again, like complex place. How do you go about figuring it out? I think that I can't remember actually if it was Tom Wolfe or Gay Talese who came to New York Magazine and did one of these things where they sat there and asked, you know, answered questions for the writers there. I honestly can't remember which one of those new journalist dudes it was. But one of them said, you have to believe that what you're writing is more important than you are. And I believed that. And I often believe that. That my ego, epic as it is, is less important than this piece of writing, right? So I'm going to be embarrassed if I get it wrong. I'm going to be embarrassed and feel insecure if people say, you didn't understand South Africa, but it's this, what I'm writing is more important. So I'm going to do the best I can to understand. And I'm going to say it the best I can. It's all I can do. If I cover my ass constantly, oh, I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to take any risks. Well, I'm never going to write anything much. Am I, you know? <laughs> right. Um, okay. I have, uh, I have worked up the courage, I think. To do what? To ask you about Thanksgiving in Mongolia, or at least try and ask you about Thanksgiving. It's going to be easier than you think. Okay. Because it's, you know, it's like it's news to you. It's not news to me. I'm me. <laughs> that happened to me. You know, I know that happened. Yeah. Um, maybe you should tell people about it in case they haven't So heard. Thanksgiving in Mongolia is an essay I wrote about the sort of uh, biggest experience of my life, I would say, which is that when I was la- a year ago... Last Thanksgiving, when I was five months pregnant, I went to Mongolia to report a story. Uh, and I was five months pregnant. And I was told, and, and, and for good reason, for good medical reasons, that it was, there's nothing wrong with flying when you're pregnant. You don't, you don't want to fly in your third trimester because, oh, my God, if you go into uh, labor early, you don't have a baby on a plane. But the fact is there's no correlation between flying and miscarriage or birth. There's, there just isn't. However, when I got to Mongolia, I went into labor in my hotel and I had this baby who died. And, you know, it was the most intense experience of my life, the most epic experience of my life. And it certainly dominated my thoughts. It's, it's still a fairly, <laughs> fairly, you know, large part of my thinking process. But certainly for the first year out, it was my whole head. 
And I wrote about it because that is what I do. And that's what I've done since I was a little kid. If something happens, I write about it. It's just what I do. Some people see a big body of water and they think, oh, I'm going to swim across it. And some people do this. Some people do that. You know, that's what I do. So that's what I did. And that's it, you know. And then I published it. That's what I did. Um, have have other people struggled to talk to you about it? Is it is it? Uh, I guess how did it change once that story was out there? There's, a, I'm trying to figure out. Do you exactly. want me to just like help you a little bit? Yeah, just tell me along. <laughs> okay, I'll help you. Okay. So before we came up with that story, my editor Nick Troutwine said, you know, <laughs> I definitely want to publish this. We got to publish this. Did you write it for yourself? Yes. Well, I wrote. I mean, I write everything for myself. You know, like I don't mean to sound like a jerk, but I do. I mean, Here, the thing I'm trying to ask you about, okay. I guess, is okay. is uh, why put it in a magazine? Why not? Because maybe you don't want to talk to a lot of people about it. I don't talk to a lot of people about it. Did a lot of people want to talk to you about it? People write me, you know, but mostly people write me and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I say, thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Or people say, I experienced this loss or that loss. And I say, I'm so sorry for your loss. But the reason they say I had this loss or that loss is they say I felt less alone when I read about your loss. Well, that's good. I don't have a problem with that. You know, that's that's good. And I'll tell you what else. I'm a feminist. And I think that having a baby come out of your vagina on your bathroom floor in Mongolia is real. That's real. That happened to me. I'm not making that up. That happened. And if you're not going to write about that, what the hell are you doing? What kind of are you a writer? And I think the idea that blood and birth and tragedy of a distinctly female nature, you know, that's that's real. That's as real as you know, I'm going to go hunting swordfish, whatever. Right. You know what I mean? This is real. That's what women do is they push human beings out of themselves. That's intense shit. And it goes wrong a lot. It's gone wrong for a lot of my friends yeah. and it's gone wrong for me. And that's part of being a woman. That's part of being, I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, some people have better experiences with it and some people don't have children and that's all real. But this is my reality. And birth is a lot of women's reality. And I don't understand why you wouldn't write about that if you were a writer and you were a feminist and that was your reality. I don't understand why you wouldn't. But people haven't, you know. I mean... I can't answer for that. I can only answer for me. And and it wasn't a question for you. It wasn't a question about writing it. It just came out of my fingers. I didn't think a lot about it. Like, oh, am I going to write that? I just wrote it. Publishing it was a big thing. Yeah. But not so much for me. It was not just my kid. And I thought about other people involved, and that was a big deal. But for me, no, it wasn't an issue at all. What happened after it came out? Many, many, many women wrote to me and said it made them feel less alone because they were tormented by the loss of children, whether it was miscarriages or little kids. You know, and, I, and I really don't mean to, c- to compare all those things. I think it's a real different thing if you know 
a kid and he's a human who gets to exist. Losing that is a different thing. However, people talk about that. And a lot of people who lose children prematurely, it's sort of confusing. You know what I mean? Like there's something distasteful about it, I feel. You know, that people are sort of like, ugh. There's something about miscarriage that's different than other things. And it's secret and quiet and icks people out. Uh So I think a lot of people who had been through that, who had been through, you know, miscarriages like mine where you give birth to a human who's alive. And you interact with that human and then he dies. It feels very difficult to accept that you're supposed to not think of this as a loss and a death of your child because it feels like that. And how could I not write about that? I mean, I suppose you can write about that and not publish it. But why? I mean, I just never. Well, you've been publishing most of the things you write since you were 20 or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's just sort of how I roll. I mean, it just is. Was it helpful for you in the process of coming to terms with it and healing, I guess? I don't know. I mean, by the time I published it, I was a year out. Yeah. And I do think that the Old Testament had it right. It takes about a year to grieve. It takes about a year to grieve where you're like crazy and your grief is kind of like epic and <laughs> tangible and, you know... I mean, my friend Matt always says, like, I would agree. I was like, I would suddenly become like a gospel singer. And, <laughs> you know, I'd just be like making sounds and using words that I'd never. I mean, it just makes you nuts. It just makes you nuts. So by the time that came out, I was a year out. So I think that's the biggest thing that, yeah. you know, it's like the timing. I was sort of on my, I was winding up my grieving. Were you working while you were grieving? Yeah. What stories did you do during that time? Well, the first story I did was a stupid story about cats, and that was nice. The people at the New Yorker said, all right, let her do this cat story because <laughs> she's a basket case. Then Steubenville. Yeah. Then Edie Windsor. Then Diane and I had, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, I got to work. Got me through. How are you doing now? Fine, thank you. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's good to hear. Thanks. It's, it's, it's really good to hear. I'm still shook up. Are you okay? <laughs> I don't know. You're going to be okay. I'm not sure. <laughs> I hope so. I'm not sure. I don't think, uh, I don't think I've, I've ever read anything in a magazine that's made me uh, uh, feel the way that story did. I read it again this morning in a coffee shop. and uh, Well, I read it this morning in a coffee shop after spending the last five days in the hospital. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, my dad had emergency open heart surgery last week. Oh, Max, I'm sorry to hear that. He's going to be okay. He's going to be fine. I'm fun. happy to hear that. Yeah, he's going to be okay. But there's a lot of hospital. There's a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of yeah. hospital, a lot of dead. And, uh, you know, and a lot of st- confronting life and death. It was, it, was, uh, it was pretty intense reading that story today in that coffee shop. Yeah. I, I, uh, I don't normally get emotional uh-huh. in a Starbucks. It doesn't <laughs> happen to me often. Well. Um, have you read it? Have you reread it? Not recently, no. No? No. Do you still have the photo on your phone? Sure. Yeah? Yeah, Do you still look at it? Rarely, but I do. Of my kid, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's my dude. Yeah, I'll (laughs) always look at that. I mean, not as much as I used to. I don't know what to say. Yes, I still have that picture. Yes, I still look at it. Yes. 
you when I asked you about it, you said it's like the most real thing that's ever happened to you. And I guess uh, one thing I, I wonder about is as uh, a journalist, and you said you just kind of sort of got back to work, but like, I don't know, how, like I had to. You had to, yeah. I would have gone crazy. I had to. I had to do something. You know, I had to get to work. I had to distract myself. I had to go think about Steubenville. I had to go think about other things. Then I had to go apply myself to other things. Got to live. I mean, or you could die. I mean, that's the other option. You could <laughs> die. But I, I really like being alive, and yeah. I didn't want to die. And um, I also thought it was a huge privilege to be somebody's mom for 10 minutes and hurt like hell having him die. But he was alive. I was his mom for 10 minutes. That was amazing. That was unbelievable. That's a privilege, you know. That's a huge privilege. Do you want to keep helping me? Are there other things I should ask you? No, because we have to stop. I have to go. Okay. You do have to go. We're late now. Yeah, no, we're late. I'm late. (laughs) I was late to come. Now I'm late to go. But I'll come back if you want. I would like you to come back. Yeah, yeah. We can talk about other things. I There's so many things we didn't get to talk about. A thing we didn't get to talk about, there's another writer named Ariel Levy. Well, you know. What do you you think of that lady? I don't know her. (laughs) I don't know her. I think she's got a great name. <laughs> you know? Thank you for doing this. Sure. Cheers, Max. You do have to come back, you know. I'll be back. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern this week, Sarah Button. Thanks very much to our sponsors, Pro Flowers and Tiny Letter. And thanks to Ariel Levy. Uh, for taking the time and for being willing to interview herself when I could not quite think of anything to say. Uh, If you have not read Thanksgiving in Mongolia, you should read it. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.